I'm Jeff Cohen. Bruce Leon is the founder and president of Tandem HR, a Chicago-based human resources firm. He also went on an interesting journey to Jewish observance, and he's here today to share his story. Bruce, I want to welcome you to Saturday to Shabbos. Hey, Jeff. It's great to be here. I appreciate you doing this. So uh, tell me, where does your story begin? Where were you born and raised? So I'm a fifth-generation Chicagoan, so my great-grandfather came here in the late 1880s. Wow. Uh, I grew up in the northern suburbs, kind of a very Jewish, not particularly uh, observant area uh, along the North Shore called Highland Park, and uh, went to high school there, and then I went to University of Wisconsin-Madison. Got it. And I want to, of course, get into the college years, but I want to back up for a moment and just go into your childhood a little bit. So you mentioned fifth generation. Do you know anything about your roots in terms of kind of the level of observance of grandparents, great-grandparents back in the Chicago days? Yeah, it's actually kind of interesting to say that. My daughter was in seventh grade, and uh, my father was still alive. We we did a genealogy project and actually found out that my great-grandfather, which my father had sort of known, but... Uh, had been sort of a family secret, in 1910, was murdered in Chicago. The day after Yom Kippur, it was strangled. He was a shamish in the, what was called the Rosh Hashul on the Old West Side. And a uh, religious man, he had seven kids. My grandfather was the fa- was the oldest, was 22. And um, it became a big deal. It was on Thursday. And on Sunday, Arab Sukkot, a thousand Jews protested what at the time was a lot of attacks on Jewish peddlers. And it was covered in all the newspapers. It actually, it was covered across the country. And uh, the chief Catholic bishop here in Chicago, because there was a big Catholic community here, he spoke at the rally and said, even though the Jews are dishonest in business, like Shylock and Shakespeare, it doesn't give us a right to murder them. <laughs> Which, oh, yeah. uh, if, if that was his way of being, uh, you know, pro-Jewish, uh, it's pretty interesting. We actually found out they never captured uh, the people. They actually identified them, but they escaped somewhere. They they stole seven dollars off him. Uh, which is quite sad. But the Jewish part of the history is the family sort of broke up at that point. They went to live with a wealthy uncle. Mm -hmm. My grandfather was 22, started to help support his mother. And this wealthy uncle had already moved to what was at that time the wealthier area on the south side of Chicago and um, had started to transition into sort of a a non-Orthodox type of lifestyle. And so by the time my father was born, they belonged to a reform temple called Temple Sinai. Actually, there's a famous book that was just published here called Sundays at Sinai because they moved the services to Sunday. Um, had the organ, the whole, you know, services in German, that kind of German reform. Mm-hmm. And my great uncle was sort of featured in there. Uh, and that's really sort of how the family kind of transitioned away. But in in doing some of the research about this grand, great-grandfather and even his father, it's fairly obvious that he was very involved in the Jewish community and uh, was a scholar and uh, a respected gabbai at this uh, sort of famous shul. And the really interesting part of the whole thing is that uh, there's a big shul on in West Rogers Park just down the street from the shul that I go to, which is called Yeshurun. Uh, it's a kind of a big rabbi there called Rabbi Zev Kohn. And that is the, I guess, the heir to this, what was called the Rosh Hashul on the west side. 
So I kind of feel like it's come full circle. Like I dive in there a lot and I feel like I can sort of feel my great-grandfather, you know, being the guy at the shul, being proud of the fact, not just of his great-grandson, but of his great-great-grandchildren who go to Cheder and have payas and black hats. And uh, so from that perspective, I do feel kind of a connection to him. And uh, I'm glad that I was able to sort of uncover this story and and uh, sort of bring it to light to the family. All right, so let's go back now to your child. You talked about um, this kind of reform background of, of your father. So is that kind of how you were raised? Like what customs were you doing that let you know you were Jewish as a kid? Yeah, so my mother actually had a degree in Jewish education, and she was a teacher at the JCC here. So we actually joined um, a fairly active reform synagogue in Highland Park. It had a rabbi that became kind of famous uh very liberally active, as that was their main thing, tikkun olam. Mm-hmm. Um, you may have heard of a story here in 1968. There was the demonstrations here during the Democratic National Convention, and there was just a movie made about Abby Hoffman. Sure. And it was called The Chicago Seven. So the story is, is that um, they were all Jewish, the Chicago Seven, and they were wanted by the police, and they took refuge in our synagogue in Highland Park. And our <laughs> rabbi, who... You know, I always laugh. I don't know how much he knew about the Torah, but he knew about the words Erie Miklot. And so uh, for one week, they actually, uh, the police surrounded our synagogue. And, uh, you know, we had the Chicago 7 camping out in our synagogue. But that was kind of the way it was brought up. I tell some funny stories that people in the community kind of like to hear in the, in the that have grown up Orthodox in Chicago. We actually came here. Um, we didn't have bar mitzvahs. We had confirmation. Mm-hmm. And as part of the Sunday school confirmation, we came to the old neighborhood, which is West Rogers Park at the time in the late 70s. And we were told to bring our cameras. And we visited Tel Aviv Bakery and and the Butcher. And we went to a very old synagogue here called B'nai Ruvain. And we were told to take pictures of people in black hats and a kosher bakery and a kosher butcher because our grandkids would never know what that would... It was like this is your history and this is because mm-hmm. at that time everybody believed that orthodoxy was sort of going away right i mean life magazine ran an article saying the you know the end of the orthodox you know in america and everything i remember 1973 i was a young child uh, when the war broke out on yom kippur everybody came to synagogue they put a big talus out and everybody started writing checks on it of course, you know, mm-hmm. that's Yom Kippur. But that was the kind of synagogue it was. You know, at that time, it was a kind of pro-Israel. And, um, you know, uh, the big thing for them, which comes back later in my story, is that they were very involved in the Russian Jewry movement. That was a big thing in the late 70s. So we were always writing letters. And we would go to a protest at the Russian embassy, you know. And that was a big thing. As a matter of fact, Highland Park was kind of the center of the Russian Jewry movement in America. And um, my synagogue was very active. My mother was active in that. So that was the kind of upbringing. It was all about social issues and equality and save the Soviet Jews, but very little in terms of Yiddishkeit. Did you know any of the Orthodox customs? Like you mentioned that there was this feeling like from that article that that was a sect of, of Jewish religion that was not going to have a future. So you're thinking you're on the right thing by doing reformed or what conservative people were doing. Did you know some of the customs they were doing or have a perspective on them as a kid? My father had a very interesting thing, which came to play later in my life. He had a very fond memory. His father, being that he grew up 
and was 22 when his father was killed. He'd grown up in a very orthodox way and gone to almost like yeshiva. So my father had a very warm feeling for orthodox people. Like, um, And he, he befriended this guy, and um, we actually would go to his house on uh, during the week of Sukkot and, and see his sukkah. My father always had a very good respect for that, um, even though you know it was sort of considered the old way that was sort of going away. But in, in terms of like my immediate life, I didn't know really people that kept Shabbos or kept kosher. The synagogue decided that the chauffeur was too barbaric, ancient, wasn't nice to the animal if you took his <laughs> horns, I guess. So we were known to have like a famous tuba player from either the New York Philharmonic or the Chicago Philharmonic. And it would be like a big deal, like this year on tuba, it's going to be the famous tubaist, you know? And the rabbi would call out like a few of these things and the tuba player would play. So I always grew up thinking that a tuba was the chauffeur, okay? Um, you know, that was just one of my funny stories. We also, we had an electric Aronakodesh like a garage door opener, okay? Uh-huh. And on uh, Yom Kippur, because that was the time when my family all went to synagogue, um, on Yom Kippur, they would bring all the big mockers in the synagogue. We had about 14 uh, Sefer Torahs, so the rabbi would get up on the time to take the Torah out because we did not read Torah in mm-hmm. our synagogue because nobody could read Hebrew. Um, <laughs> and all these mockers would come off at the top, and this big electric door would open up, and every one of them would take out a Torah and uh, they would face the audience. It was a big crowd, you know, four or 500 people. And the rabbi would, you know, yell into the microphone, this is the Torah of life. <laughs> Those that cling to it will be forever blessed. And everybody held it up. And then they turned around, put it back in the iron and the garage door came down. It was closed. And I asked him one time in confirmation class, I said, why don't we just put a book in there like, you know, uh, War and Peace or something? Because, <laughs> you know, uh, nobody can read this thing and you just sort of lift it up and everything. And and uh, he said, no, it's important that we at least have the symbolism of, of it, you know. But that's when I realized that uh, as I got older that it was almost like a museum piece, right? Don't touch it. You know, that was sort of the way it was. And interestingly enough, today, Chicago, which is a pretty big Jewish community, right? 350,000 Jews. So there hasn't been a non-Orthodox synagogue built in Chicago since 1981. In my Highland Park, when I grew up, there was 14 Reformed synagogues, of which four have closed. Mine has merged with four others. So there's exactly three now. And just in West Rogers Park, in the last... 15 to 20 years, we've built 20 synagogues. I just think that that's an interesting uh, sort of how things have really sort of taken a full 180-degree turn just, and I'm sure this is the way it is in in many places across the country in terms of at one time, reform was like the place and everybody thought that was the future and now you can kind of see they're having a hard time holding on. I did a research project uh, just out of my own curiosity of the people that I was confirmed with how many mm-hmm. of them have married Jewish? How many of them have children that have married Jewish or grandchildren? And uh, it's like less than 10%. So wow, that's, you know, that's just, I think that's just what the Pew Report is saying. And I think, you know, we're all kind of very attuned to that. So let's go a little deeper now into your education. Earlier on, you mentioned University of Wisconsin. So when you were getting ready for the college years, what were you planning to study? Did you know what you wanted to be? And was religion anywhere on the radar at that point in your life? My mother passed away when I was 19 in a very sudden situation, uh, actually in the last day of my sophomore year. 
when I came back my junior year, I went to the Hillel and I asked if once a month I could come on a Friday night and say Kaddish. How did you know to say Kaddish? So I was going to have her teach me. And I had heard it, you know, I had been to friends' bar and bought mitzvahs that were conservative. And, you know, uh, I think I had that in my head. And uh, she told me that, I'll never forget that she said, we don't have services here. And my job is not really to make minions, okay? I'm here to have programs on Israel, have programs on the Palestinians, have mm-hmm. programs on interfaith stuff. But, um, you know, she was a very hardcore and um, it kind of set with me that in this big school with 4,000 Jewish students, like, there was nowhere to say Kaddish, right? I mean, there was Chabad. And so I actually met the guy there and it was my first encounter. So fast forward a little bit. My senior year, I was majoring in international business. And there was a program there in the mid 80s to promote international business. They would place you overseas in a job in another country. And somebody from that country would come to either Milwaukee, Chicago, somewhere in the Midwest. And so I decided to get involved in this. I thought this would be good. I wanted to travel a little bit. So I got placed, of all places, if you can believe it, Helsinki, Finland. Wow. Um, (laughs) I was not going to guess that. (laughs) Yeah, I worked for the largest Scandinavian bank called Consalso Saki Panki. There were 17 other, you know, students, including a kid from Israel, that were working in Helsinki. They had activities that would go on once a week, or you'd do a trip to Sweden, a trip to there during the year. Well... I had marked on the application that I was Jewish. They asked about religion. And Helsinki at the time had basically one big synagogue, which was Orthodox. And they had a chief rabbi there. Actually, his brother was the chief rabbi in Stockholm. They're kind of a famous brother team. Mm -hmm. And the second day on the job at this bank, being that the Finnish people are so friendly and everything, wanted to make sure I was comfortable, the rabbi showed up at the bank. Wow. And um, he said, I'm here. You know, if you need kosher food or you need a place for the Sabbath or holidays and i said rabbi i appreciate it give me your card i said i do go to synagogue on yom kippur if that's possible he said yeah you know at the end of august of that summer the organized trip for the group was to go to at the time it was called leningrad it's now called saint petersburg Mm -hmm. it's only a two-hour bus ride and at the time our finnish friends that were part of the program said like here's what you got to do when you go there it was still communism it was 1985. You got to bring stuff to black market, like a pair of jeans, some music tapes, some other things. And you can, instead of getting a one-to-one ruble dollar, you get like a 50-to-1. And then you'll just have a great time for the four days you're there. And then when you get to the end of the trip, the bus will stop before you go through customs. And literally, this is what we do as Finnish people. You throw all the money out the window that is left because <laughs> you don't have any proof that you exchanged it legally. Mm-hmm. And that's it. So we get there on uh, Thursday night, and Friday morning, of course, being the Jewish one in the group, I don't know how the Israeli got out of it, but they elected me to be the one to go and uh, exchange, get money for the group. So I went with this big bag of knapsack of, of goods to a place called Lenin Square, and I'm on the square, and I'm doing my business with a nice young man there, roughly my age, and he just noticed, actually, I still wear it to this day, my uh, grandmother had bought me a mezuzah. And he said, Zid, Zid, Yid. And I said, uh, no, no, Chicago, you know, Al Capone. <laughs> I was nervous that maybe he was like, because I'd been brought up on Holocaust and all Russians hate Jews and, uh, you know, Jews are trapped there and you know, they can't get out. Sure. And it's not safe to be Jewish there. And he said, no, no, 
I'm Jew too. I'm Jew too. I'll never forget. I tell the kids, he took out his passport. And this is something, if you're talking to a group that has Russian Jews, they all know this. Their nationality was Jewish. Like, Mm -hmm. we never thought of it that way. Like, you're either Georgian, Ukrainian, Uzbekistanian, or you're Jewish, right? Right. And I started talking. His name was Alexander. And so, gave him a good price, of course. Now he's he's Jewish. (laughs) Got to give him a good price and everything. And we did our business. And then he said, tonight, we have a young group of friends, you know, like 70, 80 people. And we meet under, like, under an apartment building. And we have a Shabbat dinner. And I'd love for you to come. And I was like, I don't know, we're supposed to go to the Bolshoi Ballet. And they gave us a lecture not to wander too far because they don't want us mm-hmm. to get hurt here or, you know, do anything. So uh, he gave me the address. And all day I kept thinking to myself, my mother, who passed away, had been so involved in Russian Jewry. And here I had written all these letters. All, and here I met Refuseniks, you know. And right. my age, and he invites me to a dinner like wow, like, I know she would really want me to go. So I kept thinking, and by the time the evening came, I told the group I wasn't feeling well. They went to the ballet. When they all left, I got in a cab, gave them the address. I went there and uh, went down. There was about 70, 80 people there, most, you know, all young people. And it was like a potluck Shabbat dinner. And my friend gets up on a chair and he says, I want to welcome everybody, especially my new friend, Bruce from (laughs) Chicago. And he hands me a sitter. And a kiddish cup, and he goes, Bruce, we'll make kiddish for all of us. Uh oh, I'm guessing you don't know how to and, do it. Oh my God, I tell people, I still remember that moment like it was, like it was yesterday. You know, <laughs> 160 eyes looking at you. You're the guy from America. You've got freedom to be real Jewish. You've got all the things. You're like telling Russians, got to come to America or Israel to be free. <laughs> and um, I didn't know how to read Hebrew, and I didn't know how to say the kiddish. And like that was just a, a defining moment for me. And on the bus ride getting back, I said to everybody, hey, we're not going to throw the money out the window. Everybody give me whatever rubles you have left over, and I'm going to go say goodbye to my friend Alex and um, let him have it, right? So I give him, give him the wad of money. We hug. And um, I, I get back on the bus. Just as we're about to leave, a Russian police officer gets on the bus. And he said, did anybody lose this? And he holds up the wad of money. And I said to myself, what an idiot. In broad daylight, of course, there's KGB everywhere, Mm -hmm. you know, and I knew he knew it was me. So I said, it's mine. And then he said, you know, I'm so sorry you had to meet our Jewish black marketer scumbag of the earth that breaks the laws. And he he black marketed with you. And I'm so sorry. Here's your money back. And I felt so bad until November. I could find out that thankfully Alex's father had been in the Red Army and he had some connections and he He got got out out pretty quickly from the police uh, situation. So that was the first thing. But the second thing is on Monday morning, I took out of my desk drawer the card for the rabbi and I called him up and I said, Rabbi, would you be willing to teach me Hebrew? Mm -hmm. And I told him the story and we started to study uh, one day a week after that and we became very good friends. And um, after the year was over, um, he told me, my cost for this is, I know you're going to travel around. I want you to go to Israel. And he said, I want you to go to a place called Or Sameach and just go there for a week or two. And I think you'll really enjoy the experience there. What, what did you think was the reason that you'd be at a program like that? Did you think it was the beginning of something or you would just find it interesting because you're well, Jewish? I really and... enjoyed studying with him. I mean, mm-hmm. I got to tell you that. Like, I spent Yom Kippur with them, which was really interesting because it was Hebrew and not Finnish, it was in Scand- uh, Swedish. That's sort of the language of the Jews there. So I was lost a lot because I, you know, mm-hmm. I'd only been to English services. And and so, you know, I, and I, and I actually went back to Russia 
twice more during that year. And the third time, I actually did something fairly cool, bringing back some documents which supposedly, according to this rabbi, had information regarding Natan Sharansky that was helpful in getting him out like a year later in 1987 or 88. And so I spent two weeks at Orsamek, and that wasn't enough to really make a big change in me, but enough that when I came back and went to graduate school in Minneapolis, I was seeking out like, oh, the Hillel's having Shabbat meals. There was a, a mini kolel in Minneapolis that started up, and they had a rabbi that would come once a week to teach, and I was interested to go learn with him. So I would never have done that necessarily two years before, but if I saw a flyer that said Torah class on Tuesday night, I was interested to go. So it sparked an interest in me that sort of began to grow. And it wasn't until four years later that I really went back to Orsamak and went for a little bit longer period of time and, and really made a commitment. But it, it was enough to spark my interest, I would say. But when you went back the second time, are you now thinking this is going to go beyond an education? I'm actually thinking of adopting some of the things I'm learning about eating kosher, keeping Shabbos, etc.? Right. So then during that time in Minneapolis, I consider that to be the time I really became a carve. I got to know the Kolo guys. So we were constantly being invited out by the families there. I wasn't really Shomer Shabbos until the end. I was keeping a full 25 hours, but, you know, I was respectful enough that I parked far enough away, you know, but <laughs> I started coming Friday night meals, and then mm-hmm. sometimes I'd stay over Friday night and go to shul with them. By the end, I was, you know, really becoming much more part of the community there, and I decided I was going to take a job back in Chicago, and I had a break, and at that point, I kind of figured I'd go to Orsamak for six months, and I wanted to come back. I pretty much thought that I wanted to at least find a girl or at that time I was 27, I'd find somebody that would be interested in growing Jewishly. Like at that point, I wasn't sure where I'd end up, but I, I knew I wanted something more observant than the way I had grown up. So I was already on a pretty good path at that point. So how does your wife come into the picture? Is that in Israel or it's back in Chicago? Now here's the connection. I go to her Samak, and of course I become literally roommates and across the hall with two guys that are really incredible friends of mine to this day, Harry Rothenberg. And Yaakov Kaplan, who's John Kaplan. I don't know if you know Yaakov Kaplan from Toronto. Sure. And Harry, we just had on the podcast also. Yeah. So, so Yaakov and, you know, Harry was the guy that played baseball every Friday with his, <laughs> with his glove. And I liked to play softball with Rabbi Schiller. And um, we became very, very good friends. And when I left to come back, Yaakov was getting married in uh, end of November, I came back to start my job after the holidays, so it was the end of October. And I'll never forget this. It was early, obviously early Shabbos. So I had a, if I was going to Toronto, I had to take off Friday. It was a brand new job. And I was just working with them to tell them, I was working for a Jewish insurance firm, but I was just telling them about uh, not working on Friday, Friday afternoons and holidays. And here, like, it wasn't really a holiday or anything, and I was going to take, it was like my third week of work off. So I went out for that wedding, and I stayed with the Asia Torah family that ran up there. And uh, while I was there, I'll never forget, the wife is in the kitchen with somebody else that knew of me. And she's like, is this guy Shomer Shabbos? Where is he holding? Where is he growing? Mm-hmm. There's a scroll here, blah, blah, blah. And I could hear the whole thing, and they come out, and they said, would you want to meet somebody Saturday night? And I said, fine. They called my wife, Cheryl, and uh, she wasn't feeling well, so she said no. At the wedding, though, of course, she was there because actually 
um, her father and, and John's father were friend, very friendly. Somebody pointed her out to me and said, that's the girl. So I went up to her. I said, I can see you're not feeling well. And, uh, <laughs> she said, uh, oh, you're the guy I was supposed to go out with. And we ended up having a, a, a little conversation. And she said, well, I actually am feeling better. Are you in town at all? When are you going back? And I said, I'm going back Monday night. And we made up to meet for lunch. And it went so long, I missed my flight. That's a good sign. I sent her a dozen roses from the airport, which she still has to this day, which shows you that women have an intuition about these things. Okay, <laughs> um, And the rest is history. We, we started dating, and we were engaged within three or four months. Wow. And what was her Jewish background at the time that you met? So she was very interesting. She actually came from a small fishing village. I always tease her about it in St. John, New Brunswick, which is just above Halifax. Mm-hmm. And she had a very... Uh, she was also like a fourth or fifth generation. Um, Halifax was where a lot of Jewish immigrants came. And so St. John had a beautiful old synagogue, which still stands to this day. And her father was very involved in the synagogue. Matter of fact, he could read the Torah. He, they were like brought up conservative. So they were very Jewishly observant in the degree you could be in a small town. We were engaged and we came back. And a very, very good friend of mine was getting uh, married. And he actually got married in one of the big reform synagogues in Highland Park called North Shore Congregation, a very famous 100-year-old synagogue. And we're in there, and uh, we come out, and they're serving appetizers. And I come running out, like, and I was like, you didn't eat anything, did Because, you know, here's a girl that she grew up pretty much kosher. Her whole right. And she had in her plate, like, what she thought was mock shrimp. Mm-hmm. And I said, you didn't eat that, did you? I said, that's shrimp. And she said, in a synagogue? Like, even in a Reformed synagogue in Toronto, they, they wouldn't, wouldn't do it. serve shrimp, right? And her synagogue was always very kosher, everything. And the whole meal was completely true. And now, of course, we got involved in the Orthodox community right away, so it was different. But I think there was a point at which she was like, maybe you ought to consider coming to Toronto. It's a different mentality, you know? We were still growing a lot, you know. Uh, There were things we didn't know, everything. But, yeah, we had pretty much decided we were going to become part of the Orthodox community and and raise our kids in an Orthodox way. Got it. And I mentioned, you know, in the introduction, Tandem HR. So take us inside the career side of your life now about how that company came about, how you founded it. So I became a health insurance consultant. I had had a background in that. I'd worked for health insurance companies like Blue Cross. And actually then it joined a firm, a very, a big firm. And, uh, you know, I didn't wear my yarmulke at work. They knew I was Orthodox. They agreed to things. But I felt in many ways like I had this dual life. I remember one of the days I dreaded the most was when, like, bring your kid to work day, right? Because mm-hmm. uh, my kids had never seen me without a yarmulke on, right? Right. And my coworkers had never seen me with one. <laughs> That's uh, a catch-22. <laughs> yeah. So... I became a pretty important player in that firm in six years, and there was a, it was a third-generation business. The son was my age. I had known his wife in college. That's how we got connected. And we had a, a way of transitioning the business when his father, who was not that well, was going to transition. And at the end of the day, the father, he was very old school, and the father was a bit of an anti-Semite, I would say, in an undercover way. He always made little jabs and everything. But he, he couldn't see selling the business to, with any ownership to a Jewish person. So he told the son, so the son came to me, we had this agreement already written out, and uh, he said, let me buy my father and go through five years of paying him off, and then after five years, 
And I was like, that's not the deal. Mm -hmm. And so I broke away in 97 and formed my own company, which was a company that was involved in benefits consulting and this new uh, business, which was called PEO, which was where you did the full back office, not just the benefit consulting, but you did payroll, HR, and the full outsourced uh, product for small and mid-sized businesses, which was just becoming popular. PEO is Professional Employer Organization, just for our, for our listeners to spell out the acronyms. Right. We compete with like ADP, Paychecks, Administaff, Insperity, which used to be, you know, those, those are the big players. And when I broke away, we were three employees. They were 65. Mm-hmm. Uh, the father was very upset. He uh, sued me, uh, tried to bankrupt me. It's a whole thing. It was a tough, tough year. And I, my rabbi from Orsamaic told me to have faith. I was borrowing money to fight this lawsuit. Mm-hmm. You know, I had all the rights on my side, but, you know, they had the money. And I was making a fair amount of money as the C-level executive in this third-generation firm. And so we had just bought a house and I had made a commitment to the synagogue, you know, to help get it started, which was in the six figures. And I'll never forget, I told them I have to go back to them and maybe they can get out of the purchase. But, and he said to me, no, you give tzedakah like your regular giving tzedakah and things will work out. And this firm actually got into all kinds of hot water for other reasons and ended up uh, filing bankruptcy in 2008 during the financial crisis. And a number of employees from there eventually came to work for my firm, and uh, it, uh, things worked out really well for us. When I sold the company last year, we had 150 employees, offices in three cities, and we really were blessed from above from a lot of things that had happened. Um, but I had never grown up with a relationship to a rabbi, and my friends to this day that I'm so close to, and I tell them the one thing you're missing, forgetting about reform conservative philosophically, is that you don't have a relationship. When you're in a 2,000-member synagogue, you don't have a relationship with a rabbi. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the, the rabbi of our synagogue, the one that we built, is still my rob to this day. He's been our family rob. We go to him. I tell my friends I go to him with not just religious questions, but I go to him with, should I open an office in Milwaukee? Is this a good time? I'm going to have to spend time away from my wife. And he's very... You know, they can't believe that. Like I would, but but the fact that this rabbi gave me chizik, you know, gave me strength to sort of see past what I was seeing. I think that's one of the special things of of becoming Orthodox is, is having these kind of very meaningful relationships. And the relationships I had with rabbis helped me sort of see the bigger picture down the road and not give up. Sure, and I want to ask you one. Last question about the business. You mentioned before you started your own company, you felt uncomfortable wearing the kippah at work, even though your kids were seeing you wear it at home. So when you started your own company, was the kippah on from the beginning? How did you deal with religion? So I wore the yarmulke right away. We put mezuzahs up. On, as a matter of fact, we bought by a private equity firm. We still have mezuzahs up. Uh, and uh, We have 100 mezuzahs throughout the thing. We have big menorah here. And we're not in a very Jewish area. We're in a place called Westchester near Oak Brook. But um, here's the situation. I have about 10 to 12 Jewish people. I'm not exactly geographically located. Mm-hmm. But everybody that works here in their orientation goes through a half an hour or to an hour class on basic Judaism because our <laughs> clients are Jewish so some right. of them, and in respect we have all the day schools that use our services and what's very interesting is that Thursday night at my house having four daughters it's a challah baking affair right it's you walk in the Romas and I went around put a note to two people hey I heard you did a great thing with a customer and you really and here's some of my special Jewish bread well this became 
the most sought after prize you could give. We got written on the Chicago Tribune, the company that gives out challahs on Friday, okay? To this day, if I walk in our kitchen area, our, our big dining area, you'll see recipes for French toast. The African-American women, they all know <laughs> if you get that Jewish bread, you got to make French toast with it. It's the best, okay? And to this day, even though we're owned by a private equity firm and everything, they still honor the tradition of giving out challahs, okay? So I think in many ways, I was able to bring some of the Jewish values that I had and not hide it and not feel ashamed of it. I think you can be Jewish in the work world today, fully observant, and not be ashamed of it. It actually enhances the relationships. It doesn't detract from them. So, Bruce, I just want to say thank you for sharing not only your Jewish journey, but your career journey and how they intersected. It's really been fascinating to listen to. I know our listeners are going to enjoy it. And I want to close by asking you uh, some lightning round questions. Are you ready for it? Yeah, let's do it. So you said you're in Chicago. If I were to visit there, what's the best kosher restaurant to go to? shallots yeah what kind of food gourmet five-star meat restaurant number two is a place called the vita's argentinian grill it's a little bit more not as fancy but good food and we now have a very fancy dairy restaurant to compete with you new yorkers called nuvu and that's been very has a great vibe to it and if i don't feel like eating out and i'm going to come to your house for shabbos instead what are you serving we have gefilte fish that it's a Italian style with to- and tomato sauce, even if you don't like gefilte fish, people like this. And uh, of course, I'm a big cholent fan. So we have a really meaty cholent, okay? There are lots of meat in that cholent. Got it. And last question. If someone was truly inspired by your words today and is thinking, I just want to grab a book that will help me, or I want to go listen to a shear, I want to take a class, where would you tell them to start? I'm a big believer in Esther Youngrice. I think she wrote some very inspirational books to help people integrate slowly Jewish practice and Jewish ideals in their life. Um, and she's an amazing person, and I think we all miss her very much. Bruce, you are officially out of the lightning round, and I want to thank you so much for joining me today on Saturday to Shabbos. Hey, Jeff, it's great. Good luck with all you're doing. Thank you. Saturday to Shabbos is produced by Gary Wallach. Our executive producer is Rabbi David Pardo. Our theme music is by Paul Uden. To learn more about us, please visit TachlisMedia.com. That's T-A-C-H-L-I-S-Media.com. Tell us what you think about what you've heard, or suggest a story we should know about by emailing Shabbos at TachlisMedia.com. I'm Jeff Cohen. Thanks for listening. Please check with us often for more stories of inspiring Jewish journeys. Saturday to Shabbos is a Tachlis Media podcast.